Blog Talk Radio. Hello again. Normally I say good evening, but I don't think it matters if this is evening when I make this uh, broadcast because uh, I don't know when anybody will hear it. Uh, for those of you who do hear it in the evening, good evening. Uh, for those of you who hear it uh, any other time, good whatever time you hear it. Um, I decided after a, a hiatus, uh, a layoff of making broadcasts, uh, to come back on the air in the evening because it will allow me the time to develop some of the themes I like to develop. Uh, I will try to be a little more consistent. I always say that in terms of the time and the day, uh, but I don't promise that either. Uh, I will try because I would like more people to hear and to participate in discussions, if possible, on the broadcasts I make. Tonight is a very, uh, to me, important uh, thing to broadcast because these are the things I find important to say. Uh, after a while of making a series of broadcasts, I feel I'm saying the same thing over and over again, and there's no sense of freshness in it for me. Um, I see the world go on as it goes on and uh, sort of become disconnected from what I want to say and stop saying it. Uh, but at this point, a number of, of uh, uh, influences on my thought uh, have led me to want very much to make a nice broadcast, to develop a broadcast tonight, to tell stories. And uh, there'll be a complicated series of stories interacting with today's, um, with today's uh, overall uh, uh, construct. Uh, first of all, I'm going to discuss two books. The first is uh, The Sun, S-O-N, The Sun, by Philip Meyer, which deals with the settling of Texas in the last century. And the second, Meyer's book is a novel, and I think an excellent novel, um, <clears throat> well-structured, uh, a good story, a good read, uh, but like all stories that deal uh, with history and the realities of, of a place, you know, like the settling of Texas, uh, tragic, uh, painful, uh, and, and um, while a good read, not a com comfortable read. The second book is even more difficult for me uh, personally to discuss, and that has to do with Ari Shavit, S-H-A-V-I-T, A-R-I-S-H-A-V-I-T, uh, who works as a reporter for a newspaper in Israel, uh, Haaretz, and his book is called My Promised Land, The Triumph and Tragedy of Israel, and deals with a similar theme to the sun. The sun dealt with the settling of Texas. The uh, uh, My Promised Land deals with the settling, the uh, the uh, Jewish settling of Israel, the Zionist, particularly the Zionist movement uh, into Israel. And these are very difficult top topics to discuss, as I'll talk about in a moment, um, because most of us are told about these events in terms of myths, in terms of 
the story told by those uh, who tell it with certain kinds of biases built in. And often these biases represent three psychological and sociological dimensions, which I want to talk about first. So I want to frame each book within the concepts, the psychological concepts that I believe promote the telling and the retelling of stories such as the settling of Texas and the settling or the Zionist settling of Israel. Let's talk about the mechanisms first because I want to create a, a kind of a framework into which to make this discussion. Uh, along the way, uh, after I discuss the books, I'm going to discuss two movies that I saw in the last several weeks that when I began preparing this particular discussion, um, uh, I hadn't seen and now fit so beautifully into my discussion, particularly my ideas of a solution to these problems, what it takes to demythifize, to get a more clear-eyed view of what happened and what has to take place if the consequences of the myths, if the consequences of, of the psychological dimensions that lead to the problems or the, the intractable problems that are often created when people uh, can't see their own particular role in the conflicts that have ensued. The conflicts uh, in Texas between the uh, Anglos, the Americans, the Comanches, and the Mexicans, uh, because that was a three-way conflict for a good period of time, and between the Arabs and the Jews uh, who uh, contest the land that is Israel, that the British had created as an area called Palestine, and which now, uh, as all for the last many years, uh, threatens uh, not only the stability of the Middle East, but the future of those who live there, and maybe even the possibility of igniting uh, a, a large regional conflict, which I believe can easily, easily uh, turn into a nuclear, nuclear conflict. Well, I said nuclear. Uh, nuclear. Nuclear is George W. Bush's favorite word as he pronounced that uh, concept. By the way, um, if you would like to call in, I'd love to hear from anybody who would like to call in. I'd hope some friends would be listening to this tonight, uh, <clears throat> uh, but they're, they're, they're unavailable. But 646-716-7756, and uh, I would love your input as I go along. Now let me start with the framework. The, the, the myths that we live by, particularly in large, with large groups, very often fall into three kinds of mechanisms that are completely interrelated. So my separating them is kind of artificial, but for the point of view of the discussion, I think for clarity, they need to be separated. The first is group idealization. Uh, I have spoken many times about the <coughs> The, the, the mechanism 
that uh, Karen Horneye, a wonderful psychoanalyst, female psychoanalyst of the early 20th century, the mid-20th century, uh, described, where people, in order to develop uh, a view of themselves as good, moral, and, and worthy of love, <clears throat> don't describe themselves, but create a sense of themselves using moral terminology in which they are perfect. They seek to be perfect. Of course, uh, the reason they do this, I believe, and Horney believed, is that very often we are described by others, and this is a theme I have covered for the last many years, we are described not in descriptive terms, but in judgmental terms, so that the way in which we struggle with our identity is, are we good or are we bad? Not, what do I think? What do I feel? How do I understand descriptively the people around me as individuals, as groups? Uh, how do I describe color? How do I describe sound? How do I describe precisely what people say and what they do as best that can be made precise, but we describe things in goodness or badness. And for those of you who come across this show uh, and have come across it before, you know how powerful I feel uh, and enraged I feel about the whole psychiatric model that dominates the so-called mental health field. All of the labels that we use to, quote, diagnose people are basically moral labels. They take behavior that is unwanted, either by the group, either by those in power, or by individuals themselves, and turn them into so-called sicknesses that are not real sicknesses, but are moral labels. So that when you call somebody uh, mentally ill, what you're really saying is their behavior or their mental thinking, the way they think, is defective in some way. And when we judge behavior rather than describe the behavior by by the very definition of judging behavior we are making a moral or ethical uh, uh, statement and for those of you who do become intrigued with this idea hearing me for the first time go into my archive and I've done any number of shows that that talk about the myth of mental illness as real illness uh, uh, rather a series of moral statements hiding behind pseudo-medical terminology. So when we are judged rather than described, when we feel ourselves to be filled with shame, when we feel ourselves to feel guilt and, un and, and unlovability, unworthiness, uh, <clears throat> very often our response is to create a set of terminologies and a set of viewpoints about ourselves that are perfect. We are not flawed. When we now identify ourselves with a group, uh, and I, one of my shows that I enjoyed the most doing and I think I'm most proud of is a show I did some time ago uh, on, on uh, our tribalism the evolutionary sense of tribalism uh, that, uh, that has emerged through human history and that our tribes uh, are things we identify with 
And tribes can be anything, including uh, nationalism, our religion, uh, our baseball team, uh, any way we organize ourselves as a member of a group. Uh, that group, uh, from an evolutionary point of view, kind of takes on the role of a tribe. So I'm going to use the word tribe for American tribe, Mexican tribe, the Comanches, who were, we recognize, as a tribe. But the Jews as a tribe, the Arabs as a tribe. And when we, we uh, feel that we have been victimized, I'll talk about that in a second, very often our response is to see ourselves as morally pure. I have in my previous discussion spent a great deal of time talking about how religion plays into this. God is perfect. God is all-knowing. God is ultimate justice. God is ultimate comfort. God is perfect and pure. So that when we identify our tribe as being a member of a particular religion, and now the spokesmen tell us we have no faults, we are pure, we are perfect, we now have not an individual identity, but a tribal identity, and that identity has no flaws. <clears throat> In fact, those we oppose, those of another tribe, those are the individuals who might have hurt us or affected us negatively in some way, we see ourselves as their victim. And when one studies scapegoating, uh, the Jews being a primary scapegoat for over a thousand years in Europe, uh, the scapegoat is often in reality, on a descriptive level, small number of individuals who are relatively powerless to hurt the majority, but are seen as more powerful. An image of them is created as monstrous, and that we, the, the majority now see themselves as the victim of the minority. Now, it's not uh, unusual for people to be victimized. In many ways, all of us have been victimized. Uh, all of us have been victimized by people more powerful us, parents who didn't understand us, parents who, even if they were sorry later on, might have been abusive in one way or another, teachers uh, who, who, for whatever reason of their own feelings of powerlessness, uh, might have been uh, cruel and destructive to us in the classroom. But when we are victimized and now idealize ourselves and take the victimization, as I put it, as a mantle to live by, we now have another element. Uh, when I used to work, let me make this clearer on, on, a, on a more individual level. When I worked with married couples who were in great distress, uh, I discovered that each one saw themselves as the victim of the other. And it wasn't when they described what was actually done by the other that they weren't victims. Uh, and I have met couples, particularly couples with great distress in their marriage, and anybody in great distress in relationships, who can not only tell you how they were victimized yesterday, or hurt yesterday, or misunderstood yesterday, uh, or treated poorly yesterday, but 
they have a list in their head that can go back years, years and years and years. And the same, this is true in group, at the group level, where people can go back hundreds of years, thousands of years, to how they were victimized many, many years ago. And in fact, at that point were. And that's what's critical. Each one of the people in the couples that I've worked with were really quite accurate in describing how they were hurt by the other. What was left out was the role they played, either to throw the first blow or to throw a blow of vengeance. Each one would blame the other for the pain that they feel and the damage in the relationship. And under those circumstances, what you get is a tremendous dehumanization. The other person is no longer a real person, but a monster in your life. And as we'll see in a moment when we talk about these books, when this is raised to the tribal level, our tribe is morally pure, our tribe has been victimized, and our tribe sees your tribe as monsters, as demons, and you have this continual demonization and monstrous, monstrous creation of monsters rather than human beings. When these married couples would go on for a while, and I would allow them, very important, that they ventilate and express their pain in real legitimate terms, I would then begin to ask the important questions, which, if necessary, have to be asked, and which, if answered appropriately, will lead to a real therapy, a release of both individuals, uh, and either a reconciliation of a relationship, because most of the time when people do marry or form long-term relationships, there was respect, there was affection, there was love, there was all kinds of positive things in the relationship that drew them together and allowed them to cement the relationship. It's the baggage that they and we and, and as even groups bring into new relationships that leads very often to the problems of victimization, dehumanization, and idealization. Once I've idealized myself, I cannot see my own faults in creating pain for the other, for you. Once you've done the same, you can't see what you're inflicting on me. Once I've dehumanized you, we've gone a long way down the road to having an intractable problem, which in many cases uh, involves so much abuse that the best thing to do is to end the relationship. And I would very often uh, send people to a lawyer or tell them to find a lawyer rather than continue working with them because it was too painful for them and for me to continue the kind of, of abuse, name-calling, uh, uh, even at the times, when, not when I was there, but when I was not there, the physical abuse that they would levy on each other and the pain this would create as they tried to pull each of their children, any of their children, into their own orb of victimization and idealization while they dehumanized uh, the other, demonized the other. So these are the mechanisms. These are the mechanisms. And unless they're undone, 
And that would begin with a couple when I said to them, what have you contributed to this, each of you? Can you talk about what you have contributed to the mess that you're in now, the painful relationship that has replaced a loving, caring, sexual uh, uh, relationship in which the two of you created a life and even brought children into the world on the basis of the love and respect that you had at the beginning of this relationship. And I would wait. I would wait. And sometimes that was the last session. But often, each one would now look and develop a kind of an embarrassed look on their face and begin to talk about, yes, they did know they were inflicting harm on the other. They weren't listening. They weren't respecting. Uh, they were talking out of rage. They were talking out of self-pity. They were talking out of shame. Uh, I'll talk a little bit about shame. Uh, add another story in this as we go along. Because shame is a powerful, very often overlooked uh, emotion in terms of the deterioration of relationships uh, at the individual or at the larger tribal level. Shame is a very powerful, corrosive relation, uh, emotion unless it's faced and it's worked through. So, here we are. Here we are. Here we are. Let's talk now a little bit about the books. Uh, my patients have either gone on to reestablish a relationship, uh, end it in a more friendly, more reasonable way, uh, at least where the children will be affected, or uh, they've gone on to uh, maybe fall in love again, maybe find a commonality uh, and even a stronger relationship because there's more insight into it, Uh, each one seeing the other in more human terms, uh, in more, less authoritarian, less dependency, uh, uh, less ways in which the victim and the monster uh, can interact, and more as two human beings as equals uh, can interact with fairness, with respect, uh, with dignity, uh, with insight. Right. Uh, those are always the goals of working in a relationship. Those still are my goals. Uh, as a human being myself, with the people I love, the people I care about, uh, and and, uh, hopefully um, to add to the chance that a society that we live in, the world that we live in, uh, can operate on the level of recognizing uh, the validity of human beings as well as the validity of the group uh, and and, uh, uh, respect and love uh, and fairness and justice being the uh, modem of interaction rather than judgment and hatred uh, and attack. Uh, I have an easier time talking about um, Philip Meyer's book, The Sun. The book deals with uh, uh, people who had been settled in Texas, a family, who are come upon by Comanches, uh, actually, it opens up with uh, the uh, group of Texans in more modern times, in the, in the 1930s, uh, with the development of oil and the, want, the desire to have Texas own all of the oil lands and all the cattle lands, and the few remaining Mexican families 
being murdered, being wiped out, man, woman, and child. And then goes back into the history of the particular, one of the particular families uh, that was involved in that massacre. Uh, and it deals with the, uh, the great-grandfather of that family, known as the colonel, uh, who, as a young teenager, uh, lives with his sister, his brother, mother and father, on a family farm in Texas who are then come upon with a uh, raid by the Comanches. Now, let me, let me just back up a little bit. Uh, I don't have a problem discussing this at this point in my life uh, because I no longer idealize or identify with or take my identity from either Texans or from uh, Mexicans or from Comanche Indians. When I talk about Shavit's book, I have a bigger problem because I do identify myself as a member of the tribe of Jews, of Judaism. Uh, and therefore, my objectivity, if it exists with Israel, is uh, more compromised and a bigger struggle for me to, to uh, uh, hold on to. But in any event, um, what we have is in this raid of the Comanches is that we see the tribe of warriors that were the Comanches were a real brutal and potentially very cruel group to other tribes. They had been killing uh, um, Mexicans for a long period of time who were trying to kill them in return uh, and largely had wiped out the Apaches uh, who often in the movies are described as the most uh, warrior-like and the most savage-like as one of the tribes. But the Comanches apparently were a real powerful warrior uh, uh, culture and uh, dominated the Apaches in Texas uh, and had killed large numbers of Mexicans. Um, I recognize through history how cruel and destructive uh, white uh, uh, Christian immigrants as they moved across the country from the time they landed at Plymouth Rock could be to the indigenous people. Um, they saw them as savages. They saw them as godless. They saw them as inferior. Uh, and it took me a long time as a child to give up my idealization of the pilgrims and my idealization of the Americans moving west uh, in their Conestoga wagons and wagon trains as the innocent victims of the savage Indians that would attack them for no reason. What I learned is that when Americans moved west, they saw open prairie land, as I'll speak about in a moment, when the early Zionists came to Israel, they also saw nobody living there. The fact that there were Arabs there, the fact that the uh, Anglos, the Christian, mostly Christian group moving west, didn't see Indians there. These were open lands for the taking. The notion that they could just move in and take these lands uh, was fixed in their heads. There was a dehumanization of those who were living in that property not from all, 
because one of the critical characters in the sun sees the Mexicans and sees the Indians more fully, very fully in many cases, as human beings having their own rights, their own needs, and their own individuality beyond the fact that they're Mexican. When the idealization comes at the tribal level, we see ourselves as pure, as perfect, as not making mistakes, as not inflicting harm, not as the monsters we can become to the other. And they are in the same state of mind so that they cannot see our humanity and what they are doing to us in whatever tribe we identify with. This is what leads to so much of the horror and the destruction. And this is what I think potentially still in good measure, will undo our world. Because we have now gone through a World War I, a World War II, one horror after another, one horror after another, in which at the tribal level there seems to be very few good guys, but rather idealized groups that dehumanize and victimize while they see themselves as the victims uh, in perpetual war, in perpetual rage, in perpetual destruction of self and others. When I saw Little Big Man, the movie with Dustin Hoffman, it sort of made my head spin. Because what Hoffman had done was what is done in the sun. Ultimately in the sun, the family is killed by the Comanches. And one young boy goes and is taken as a captive among the Comanches who then allow him to become a warrior in a way. And he now becomes a Comanche and thinks in terms of Comanche. Uh, he now has adopted a new tribe with all of the idealizations, sense of victimization, real victimization, but now elevated into a moral force, into, into the notion that we are ideal, and whatever we do to our victimizers is justified and morally correct, so that we don't see ourselves now as the monster. We don't see ourselves as giving up our humanity as we take away the humanity of those we are in conflict with. See, the more I talk about this, the clearer it becomes, at least to me, and how important I see it is to somehow find ways, which I will discuss in a little bit, to undo it, if such is possible, before it's too late. I won't talk any more about the, the uh, sun. I don't want to completely ruin the book, although, you know what? Um, it reads like a Greek tragedy, and like any good Greek tragedy, you know it doesn't end well, but it doesn't change the beauty of the story or the power of the story as you're reading it. Shavit's book is not a novel. Shavit is a reporter, and I think a very fine one. And he describes the... Uh, uh, well, well, let, me, let me back up a second. When I read this book, I kept talking about it to my wife, who still hasn't read it, and I started to ask others, friends of mine, to read it. And when they asked what it was about, I began to describe it, and I was faced 
as I should have seen beforehand unless I had prepared them for the kind of thing that I wanted them to see in the book with rage and anger. I had uh, seen uh, one of the couples I described this to who didn't get angry but got terribly, terribly upset uh, at what I described in the book uh, as Shavit's description of the Zionist movement uh, into uh, Israel into what was then uh, the British colony uh, uh, of Palestine. Um, others started to become enraged at me, and I realized I could lose all my friends this way. So under my wife's advice, I stopped talking about it. One of the reasons I'm doing this broadcast, it allows me to talk about it. And what I believe I have done is to f- create a framework so that if you get angry, you have to ask yourself, am I looking at the Israeli or the, the Texas situation with a kind of a clear eye, or am I seeing it through a myth, a myth of idealization, victimization, and demonization? Because once a couple would see what they were doing to each other, or patients would see what was done to them, that they're now doing to others. No patient I ever met who came into my office didn't begin by saying, I'm a good person. Uh, yes, they were a good person. Yes, they were a wounded person psychologically, not sick, wounded, who cannot see what they have done to their children and done to others that had been done to them, if not in the exact same way, but in a somewhat different way, but it followed the same themes, exactly the same themes. Each generation complaining about their parents and then uh, seeing themselves as the victim of parents' ignorance, of parent cruelty, of, of a failure of the parents who themselves were seen in one way or another as the victims of their parents, who now turn around and as much as they complain about their parents, cannot even hear their children voice complaint about them. They are now as perfect as their parents were when they tried to complain. I mean, it works this way. It works so clearly this way. So to go back to Israel, the great-grandfather of Shavit was a Jewish Zionist. Now, we have to understand that for a thousand years, the Jews were one of the most scapegoated, victimized people in Europe. They were the perfect scapegoat. What is the perfect scapegoat? Somebody who could look and act different than the majority, the larger tribe. Somebody who becomes isolated or self-isolates. Somebody who, in one way, is feared and admired, and somebody who is too weak to really fight back, but who, in their demonization, is seen as more powerful and more uh, 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 controlling to create problems for the majority. So for the Jews, they were followed by a book of Zionism, The Book of Zionism was a phony book that circulated through the anti-Semitic circles in Europe that described how Jews want to take over the world, described how Jews were stingy, how Jews were destructive to Gentile children. In fact, to the point 
where they would kill them, eat them, and drink their blood. The Jews were the monsters to be feared. And because the majority now were the victims of the monsters, they could impunity defend themselves by inflicting massive pain on that group. The Zionists were individuals, many of whom communists and many of whom were atheists, who very clear-eyed did not see their uh, pain as because they were bad and victimized by God as a punishment for wrongdoings in the past or the present, but realized a catastrophe was coming and that Jews of Europe, particularly Eastern Europe, uh, were uh, in great trouble and something monstrous was going to happen. So they began to look around, where could Jews go? Where could the Jews of Europe go before the big catastrophe that ultimately did happen in the Holocaust uh, would take place? And they went to the Promised Land. Now the story of, of the Jewish original settlement in Israel uh, is the famous story all of us learn in Hebrew school that's in the Bible, that the Jews had been enslaved in Egypt, and finally Moses was sent by God to free the Jews and take them to a holy land, a land of milk and honey that he would provide them. And it's a very interesting story, a very powerful story. Uh, has some problems with it. Uh, who was living in the land that God gave them at the time? And there were people there. Uh, and I won't go through the story of how Moses uh, had hit the rock and water appeared. Uh, he was angry with God uh, and lost faith and how God now uh, took the children of Israel uh, for that sin and for the sin of, of uh, turning away from him and uh, believing in false idols and false gods and made two generations of Jews wander through the desert until they finally came to the promised land uh, and the city of Jericho. Uh, Moses was now gone. He had departed. He died. Um, I always wonder, uh, how did a group of slaves who left Egypt and wandered in the desert uh, suddenly develop a powerful army? That, that, from a historical point of view, always intrigues me. But in any event, God now told them, uh, under the uh, uh, leadership of, of uh, oh God, my, another name momentarily, uh, Joshua, uh, the leader, oh boy, do I have a problem with names. It gets worse and worse all the time. Uh, to bring down the walls of Jericho and kill every man, woman, child, and animal and take that land as theirs. So that the promised land was taken, given by God in the mythology, to me the mythology of the story, by victims who now could see the moral clarity and the right to destroy those who were living there. That to me, as I hear, it was the original story and the justification God gave the children of Israel, after 300 years of slavery uh, in Egypt and 40 years of wandering in the desert as nomads, a place to call their homeland. Uh, 
the history of, of the sacking of the temples, of the Roman conquering of Israel, of that area, uh, one conquering after another through that whole cradle of civilization uh, up until modern times. When the, the Zionist and the Zionist grandfather of Shavit, great-grandfather, came, they saw a completely open land. The fact that there were Arabs living there for a thousand years became kind of invisible under A, the desperation to find a place for uh, uh, Jews to escape from the coming uh, Holocaust as they saw it and understood it and the hundreds and thousands of years of pain inflicted uh, by uh, Russians and Poles uh, and Ukrainians and uh, Slovakians and that whole Middle European, uh, nobody quite saw uh, the, the uh, role that the Nazis would play in the supposedly fully civilized uh, 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 advanced country of Germany in terms of the Holocaust. But they understood that that pain in Eastern Europe had to be ended and there had to be a safe haven for the Jews. The story of the Zionists is an interesting story, one I was not familiar with until Shavit, and I must tell you I've Googled and gone online to uh, uh, try to back up Shavit's facts, and I find his book wonderfully written and very, again, clear-eyed, uh, free of any of the mythology of we're victims, however we were victims at this moment, uh, I'm not the victim. Uh, Number two, uh, that I am not perfect. Uh, I can make mistakes, uh, both as an individual and my tribe can make mistakes. This is what gets my, my friends and people who read this book unannounced and not knowing where it's going, how angry they could become. Uh, and uh, uh, I, I can see uh, the people who are there as not necessarily deserving to be there. I can't see my own ability to victimize others. But the early uh, settlers did a heroic job. The Zionist settlers did a heroic job uh, in creating farms, clearing out swampland, uh, producing or the beginning of the production of a land of, of uh, uh, advancement, of uh, scientific advancement, of uh, commerce, of, of all of the things that Israel uh, now can be proud of as a country uh, and Jews can be proud of as a people. I'll get to the issue of can we all be proud as individuals in a little while. The inevitability of conflict with the Arabs who were living there was there. But many of the early uh, Zionist settlers clearly wanted to live side by side and form a peaceful relationship with the inhabitants of Palestine uh, that had been there for so long. Uh, not organized, by the way, as, as a large group or as a national group, uh, the concept of a Palestinian people did not exist until 1967 uh, when uh, uh, the, the, the first war with, with uh, uh, the Arab world took place. And there are, in Shavit's description, many very successful experiments of people living together. 
There was, of course, at one point uh, an uprising by a radical uh, Muslim uh, cleric uh, who, in his sense of uh, purity, in his sense of uh, idealization, uh, started killing Jews, and that disrupted and caused fear uh, that the Jews who were there sent, saw themselves as a victimization. Uh, both the Arab, uh, the, the Jews uh, who fought back uh, and, and uh, the British who were the controlling force in uh, uh, Palestine at the time, it was called Palestine, um, put down that rebellion. Uh, at that point, there was a turning point. Had the British been less anti-Semitic and less uh, uh, full of their own idealization, uh, a peace could have possibly been imposed. And maybe, maybe, but history, uh, we can't go back and know this, something could have been worked out so that Israel uh, or Palestine would have stayed Palestine, the Jews who, uh, who uh, as a result of the Holocaust and immig other immigrations, could have come to Israel, and they could have lived in peace. That, of course, didn't happen. And what Shavit describes is how the early Jewish leadership, particularly in 1948 when Israel uh, was voted to be a state, an independent state, decided that state uh, had to be, the leaders had to clear many of the Arabs out of Palestine. Uh, I'll let you read the book itself, if you wish, the description of the town of Lida, or L-Y-D-D-A, I'm not sure I'm pronouncing it right, uh, and how 10,000 Arabs, men, women, children, and babies, were ushered out in several hours from the town. Shavit calls that the black box of Israel. Now, I'm not talking about good guys and bad guys. I'm talking about people who, under the pressure of history, under the need to see themselves survive, make decisions. And as human beings, idealize, see themselves as the victims, and can easily, so easily, all of us as human beings, regardless of our race, our religion, can form a group identity that demonizes other groups and sees them as less worthy of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Uh, I offer anybody to read the book, both books. I think they're incredibly important. The Holocaust did take place, and it was taking place, uh, 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 as the Zionists were desperately trying to create a homeland. Uh, six million Jews, but two million gypsies, uh, large numbers of people considered retarded, uh, people who were in any way politically different from the Nazi regime. Uh, Eleven million people in all, I heard 13 million on one estimate, were herded through the death camps. And our world has not been the same. We are not the same. And I believe in many ways we have lost faith with ourselves as human beings. Uh, Shavit's description of modern Israel 
the rise of sex clubs and drugs and rock and roll for the younger generation, uh, the politics today in which a very strong contingent of ultra-Orthodox Jews, fully idealized, fully believing that God is behind them, do not want a democracy. Uh, like most ultra-religious groups who claim that God is directing them and they speak for God, um, democracy is anathema. It's a feared and hated process, believing that only God can lead us uh, and only God uh, um, should be followed. And of course, that means following the political leaders who stand up and claim they know what God wants. And do we have to go through a long discussion of how this is now taking place in the politics in the United States? Uh, in Texas, I read this week, a fellow was running for uh, lieutenant governor, very powerful position in the Texas legislature, uh, who publicly states that before he is an American or a Texan and before he's a Republican, he's a Christian. Uh, and, and his goal uh, is to stop abortion. His goal is to uh, empty the country of, of, of uh, homosexuals who are the devil's spawn, uh, and he will possibly, maybe probably, be elected. So we're not talking about something uh, that is unknown in Israel or in Texas or anywhere in the world. Our history is written written by idealization, demonization, and the mantle of victimization. It's written. We're in trouble. I have said this before. We're all in trouble. Let me talk a little bit about the two movies that I've seen just recently that really stimulated me to uh, do this show. And suddenly in the middle of the night, I woke up with this feeling of lightness, a feeling of, of just euphoria that the two movies represent or at least show the solution to the conflict we're in. They do. They do. The two movies are Omar and Bethlehem, remarkably similar in themes. As far as I could tell, the movie Omar, which I believe has won the Academy Award this year as the best foreign film, and Bethlehem, which didn't win any awards, but I felt was a more subtle, a more fully realized picture along the same theme. Both are Greek tragedies. Omar seems to be funded by Arab money. Uh, the, uh, uh, Bethlehem is funded by Israeli money. Yet, both seem to be fairly free of uh, cant, of politics, and deal with human beings. And the theme of both is the same. In each picture, Israeli secret agents, that is, Israelis who try to predict and find out what's going on in the Arab communities of Israel and the West Bank and Gaza, which are now under the control of Arabs, uh, what are they planning? Are they planning bombings? Are they planning a war? Uh, what are they planning? And they have 
uh, just as the detectives all over the United States, they develop what are called assets uh, in the community that they're trying to control and find out about. And in each case, the film deals with a specific Israeli policeman, uh, a Secret Service agent, security agent, and a young adolescent or just post-adolescent uh, Arab child uh, who defines himself as Palestinian uh, living in the West Bank uh, or in this particular Bethlehem in the town of Bethlehem. What the films, I don't want to tell you how the, well, the films both end as a, would a good Greek tragedy. You know uh, in any Greek tragedy and the definition of a tragedy are individuals caught up in their time who are unable to change the course of their actions to prevent some ultimate death or destruction from taking place. It's not the death of the particular individual that you and I might call as tragic. It's tragic he died so young. But the fact that individuals end up dead because they are unable to change or influence the, the uh, groups, the culture, the families that they live in. In both cases, both the Israeli and both the young uh, Palestinian are caught up in the Israeli struggle to survive and the Palestinian struggle as they see it to get their homeland back uh, or, or establish uh, an identity as Palestinian uh, that they feel makes them equal and makes them uh, in control of their own destiny. Both groups are fully idealized. Both groups can justify and point to victimization, and both groups demonize the other. What's wonderful about the movies, particularly these two, is that the relationship between the uh, Jewish detective or undercover agent and the Arab is human. It is a humanized relationship. Each sees the other as a human being, as an individual, which in a few moments I will say uh, uh, represents the solution to the dilemma that we're in. Each one does. I recommend you see the picture. I'm not going to talk any more about the picture. The Israeli picture, the Bethlehem, is more subtle in the relationship because what it shows is this young Palestinian boy who's caught up in the politics of his family and his friends and his older brother, who in fact is a terrorist uh, who does a, a, a bombing in Jerusalem, killing nine people and wounding 30 others. Uh, and what he's caught up in, in terms of the ideal, ideology, the idealization, the dehumanization, the victimization of his group, sees the uh, Israeli cop as a kind of father figure. And the Israeli cop clearly loves and wants to protect this young boy. Not because he's an Arab, not because he's a Jew or not a Jew, but because he sees him as a human being suffering and he wants to protect him and help him grow up. Powerful stuff. 
that it doesn't work out, you could read in the headlines. You and I know that this stuff rarely works out, that the politicians, that the haters, that the people seeking power, I've talked many times in many of my shows, that the worst people in our society are those who seem to seek power, idealize themselves, stoke the flames of idealization, demonization, and self-victimization. And the rest of us struggle to find an individual basis in which we can love others, respect others, and demand that we be loved and respected in turn. I, I hope you read the books. I hope you uh, see the movie Omar and Bethlehem. They are around. Uh, I saw one in a major theater. I saw one in a small theater. <coughs> uh, I'm sure they can be rented on television. Um, so what's the solution? <coughs> the solution is to be found in the movies. In part, it seems to me, the solution is the fact that the movies were made. That the movies reveal, without politics, without idealization, without all the defensiveness that exists, that the Arabs are made up of individuals, that the Jews are made up of individuals, that the people that you love, that you recognize are individuals, are no more or less individuals than the people you hate and fear. That the movies could be made and released is to me a small straw of hope. It is. On the other hand, the solution is to be found in individual relationships, in our refusal to see others of any group, of any color, of any race, of any religion, of any nationality, as not made up of, ultimately, individuals. Of a struggle each of us has to make to say, before I am a white man, or a Christian, or a Jew, or an American, I am an individual with a family name and a given name. And at the top of any hierarchy of understanding, my motives are mine. I am responsible to me and to those I love and to those around them. And I wish to create something that I as an individual, as the only person who can see and create that particular individual piece of art, of music, of dance, of food, of a book, a poem. It is in the arts such as these movies and paintings and music that I believe hope exists. It is in the individual who recognizes that I cannot live only as an individual. I need a family. I need a community. I need things to believe in. But ultimately, I am myself. That hope exists. You cannot love a people. You cannot be loved by strangers. Love exists in a face-to-face, -face, looking-in-the-eye type of interaction. I have said this many times on my show. If I continue doing shows, tonight I'm kind of pleased and happy to have produced this show. 
I hope millions of people will ultimately listen. I may even call up the people at Blog Talk Radio and find out how I can more fully promote and, and get my shows to be heard. I will say the same thing over and over. We cannot live alone, but we cannot live in any satisfying way to be swallowed by our tribe, to give up our individual identity, love, and creativity for some mob. And that is that. I'm going to hang up. It is now 8 o'clock. I got online at 7 o'clock. Perfect, an hour. I don't know who can listen for an hour. I had no problem talking for an hour, but that's okay. I will stay on the line for another 30 or 60 seconds before I go and make a nice cup of tea with lemon and, and, uh, and honey. Oh, boy, I have learned to put some honey into tea. Not thinning, but deliciously wonderful. And find something for dessert. And say goodnight. But I will hold online if anybody is there. Anybody has heard this? Well, until next time, friends and neighbors, individuals, I hope you... Oh, let me finish. I saw one more... Uh, never, I'll talk about this another time. I saw a play during this time about, Ellie, uh, about uh, Simon Wiesenthal, the famous Nazi hunter who got his formal education in Auschwitz. Uh, and it's a one-man play. Uh, and I'll talk about the themes there, but he was saying uh, what I'm saying. Wiesenthal believed no collective guilt. Uh, you don't see people as their tribe. You see them as individuals. Uh, the sons do not carry the sins of the fathers. Uh, a broad man, a wonderful man. Uh, and, and a man, again, is an individual capable of love and capable of, of uh, creativity uh, and a powerful sense of justice. But that's for another time, another night. And I'm going to say goodnight, and I'm going to sign off. <laughs>